Section 1 of The Voyage of the Pox, an Allegory, by Dom Bede Cam, O.P. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Mozart, Jr. I fell asleep, and found myself transported to the shores of a vast ocean. The shore stretched before me, an interminable expanse bounded only by the distant horizon, a long stretch of yellow sand backed by a wall of inaccessible cliffs. The sea was calm and blue, and the sun shone brightly on the sparkling waters. Along the beach lay a flotilla of boats of all kinds and sizes, while further off loomed large in the bright haze the outlines of great ships, transports as it seemed. Upon the shore was gathered an immense crowd of people of all ages and classes, all eager to embark. Some were chaffering with boatmen over the price of the passage. Others had taken possession of the rowing boats, and were making their way to one of the large ships that lay off the shore. Others were seizing on boats of all kinds, including frail canoes, which seemed as if they might be swamped by the waves in the very moment of leaving the shore. Among the crowd, my eyes rested on a little group of boys. Two of them struck me particularly. They were evidently brothers, and the younger clung to his elder brother's hand, as if half frightened by the uproar. The elder was a tall and graceful youth, with dark curly hair, and deep gray eyes which looked you in the face, with the fearlessness and confidence that only innocence can give. He seemed about fifteen, and his brother, whom he was watching over with a tender care that seemed almost paternal and yet was wholly boyish, must have been about eight. The other two boys who formed the little group formed a contrast to the brothers. One, a tall lad of some fifteen years, was very fair, with a sunny face and laughing blue eyes, which were most attractive. His companion pleased me less. He had a sullen expression on his face, and rather shifty look in his eyes, and he was evidently out of humor. He was short and thin, and was probably the oldest member of the little party. His name, as I soon learned, was Symphorian. The boys were bareheaded and clad in a simple white tunic reaching to the knees and leaving their limbs bare. The tunics were girt with a belt, and round their necks hung a golden cross. I went nearer to hear what they were saying. Why dost thou not heed me, Calixtus? I heard Symphorian complaining to his fair-haired companion, instead of running all over the shore looking for a boat that must have gone without us, or which has never come at all. Why not take yonder fellow's offer? He says he will row us out to that fine galley yonder, and if size and speed count for anything, we shall reach our journey's end far quicker and more safely than by thine old-fashioned bark. Poor old Symphorian, was the reply, I am so sorry to try thy patience thus. But thou knowest that we were told to look for the boat with pox upon the prow, and the guide who would bring us safely home. Agathos and Theodore here are going by the same boat, and thou wouldst not like to leave them in the lurch? Come, interrupted Agathos, the elder brother, whom we have described, I think our search is at an end. Look, Symphorian, look, Theodore. Look at that large galley yonder with the black banner on which the device we seek is embroidered in golden letters, Pax, and see yon stranger standing by the ship with the long flowing robes and the hood upon his head. Surely this is the guide sent us by the prince. Methinks he has a venerable face and kindly air, and we should do well to join ourselves to him and I see there are other lads already in his company. And Agathos led the way to a little group standing by the waterside. Welcome, my children, said the voice of the stranger. Will ye embark with me in the good ship Pax? 
She is a boat that hath made the voyage many thousands of times before, and never has she lost a passenger, save indeed that they left her by their own will, since the day that she was built long years ago. Father, said Agathos, we long to arrive at the Golden City, where our parents wait for us to bring us into the presence of the king, and they told us that we should voyage most securely in a boat that bore the same device as thine. I pray thee, who is the builder and owner of this vessel? It was built, my son, long years ago, by one named Benedict, was the reply. That means blessed, does it not? interposed Calixtus. Yes, verily, and blessed was he both in name and grace. This ship hath he built to bring across this stormy sea those who are willing to trust themselves to it, and to obey the conditions which he hath laid down. And what are they? inquired Agathos, while little Theodore looked up trustfully into the kind face of the stranger. And how much doth the passage cost, I pray? These are the conditions, my son. The passage is free to all, and there is no price asked. But ye must know that this ship is one of the pilot vessels that lead the flotilla of the prince's ships. And since it must be the leader, it can bear no idle passengers. All that embark therein must be mariners, willing to take their turn at the oar, and ready to obey in all things the commands of the captain. And since this ship must go faster than the rest, it must be weighted down by no useless merchandise or baggage. Empty-handed ye must embark, nor must ye pick up anything upon the way. And as the pilot ship, it must be the model to the prince's fleet, and therefore must the oarsmen be clean and pure, within and without, so that on board this ship there can be no unseemly mirth or ribald songs, but the oarsmen cheer their labor by singing the sweet songs of the golden city, and they must in all things follow the instructions laid down for their guidance by the owner of the ship. What? cried Calixtus ruefully. May I not take these pretty stones with me? And he showed a collection of sparkling stones and curious shells which he had been picking up on the beach. And will there be no fun for us at all upon your boat? My son, replied the stranger gravely, though there was a kindly smile in his eyes, as he looked at the eager flushed face of the boy. My dear son, thou must make thy choice. If thou wishest to go with me, thou must leave thy baubles behind. But think not that there will be no gaiety on board. Happy you will be, and gay and merry, as becometh the favoured children of so great a prince. Only the amusements, such as those indulge in, who live but for pleasure, will not be for you. And indeed, my child, these pleasures have been the means by which too many have come to miserable shipwreck. Those who sail with me, the stranger continued, looking round at the little group, must have but the one aim, to get as quickly as possible to the golden city, there to see their king. They must not desire to linger by the way, or to wander first to divers other ports, and then think at the end to find their way home at last. Indeed, my children, such people do greatly deceive themselves. One day is all we have for our voyage, and it is none too long. But, put in one of his hearers, a tall young man with a slightly effeminate look, whom I had not noticed before, Meanest thou that we may not voyage by the Isle of Plenty, and call it the city of Valuptas, by the way? The sailors of yonder ship told me that they were going that way, and that they would reach the Golden City in plenty of time. Besides, I had rather pay my passage with these golden coins, than have to work like a galley-slave at the oar. Well, my son, was the reply, thou art free to embark on yonder ship if thou wilt. Only I warn thee that thou wouldst be far safer with me and oft has it happened that those who landed on the Isle of Plenty tarried so long that they could not reach the Golden City before the night. Others have so weighted down their ship with merchandise that 
that they have been unable to weather the storms that always beat around the point which we must double before we reach the haven where we would be. Still I would not persuade thee to embark on the pox against thy will. But if thou comest not with me, take rather a passage on the Precepta Dei, one of the king's ships, in which thou wilt reach home in safety, though not so swiftly or with such honour as in a pilot-boat. Yet even there thou wilt have to work and to obey the captain. Those who embark as for a pleasure-trip will never reach the haven. Eutyches hesitated for a while, and then I saw him leave the group, and a little later I noticed him bargaining for a berth in a large, brightly colored pleasure-boat, which already seemed too crowded with gay young men and women to be a safe refuge on a stormy sea. Meanwhile other lads had gathered round the stranger, and his crew was soon complete. A pretty sight it was to see them set sail, singing lustily a sacred canticle the while. Methought the words ran in Exitu Israel de Egipto. The large black sails were filled with a seaward breeze, and the boys were divided into two companies, one of which labored at the oars, while the others cheered them with their songs, till their turn came to row and the songs were all about the golden city and the king to whose presence they were longing to be admitted. The stranger sat at the helm and guided the good ship Pox skillfully through the rocks which reared their threatening heads on every side. I noticed that he consulted ever and again his chart, which was inscribed Regula Sancti Patris Benedicti, and was in truth a chart drawn up by the builder of the ship long years ago, by which men might steer a safe course. I noticed also that the boys rowed with oars on which was inscribed in golden letters the device Laborare est orare. At first methought they had difficulty in managing these oars, though some found them easier than others, and thus their rowing was uneven, and the ship did not keep a straight course. Calixtus rowed vigorously and powerfully, but without much science. Indeed, he was less proficient in some respects than even little Theodore. Agathos, however, who led the little band, rowed well and bravely and his oar seemed to glide easily through the water with a pleasant rhythm and evenness which gave time to the whole crew. And the stranger, meanwhile, would cheer them with word and smile, and the hymns that went up into the clear heaven put strength and courage into the young arms that otherwise might have flagged with the unaccustomed labor. I turned to see how the other boats were doing. Following close on the pox came a flotilla of boats, not unlike her in appearance, though bearing different flags. On one I saw a strange device, two arms crossed, bearing each wound prince in the hands. It was the banner of the seraph. Another bore the device AMDG, another Jesu Christi Passio, and yet a fourth I noticed called the Hound of God. These were gallant boats, and others were there like to them, and all were manned by crews of young oarsmen full of zeal and fervor. But methought that on the pox the hymns were more incessant, and the oars moving more swiftly and more evenly than on all the rest beside. Again I saw the mighty hull of the Precepta Dei, which trusted not to oarsmen but to its sails alone, and so depended on the wind. It lagged behind the others I have mentioned, nor did it follow the same straight course. Perchance its great size prevented it from going through the shallow channels between the rocks which the pox threaded so easily and securely. Behind and around, scattered over the sea as far as the eye could reach, were countless other barks. Though all professed to have the same destiny, I was surprised to mark that many were taking very different courses, and some indeed seemed drifting at the mercy of the wind without compass or even rudder, while the passengers amused themselves, as if the boat must bring them safely home of its own accord. Not so the pox. Very vigilant was the steersman, and very promptly did the young oarsman obey his directions. All was order and yet discipline on board that happy boat, 
yet in spite of their hard work the faces of the rowers were full of brightness and joy. Ever as Agathos bent his strong back to the oars, I seemed to hear him whisper, One step nearer home. And when little Theodore was tired of rowing, I marveled to see how gently the stranger took him in his arms, and told him stories of the golden city, which comforted him and delighted him so greatly, that presently he was all eager to begin again. I noticed, too, that the gay and bright Calixtus was growing more serious at his task, and that the oars now dipped together evenly and regularly, and his stroke was almost as long and as steady as that of Agathos himself. Symphorian, however, looked less happy. He seemed to find the work hard and unattractive, and even the sweet songs of his companions began to weary him. I heard him often asking the stranger for a rest, and when he was granted it he seemed unwilling to return to the oar. And though he was strong and vigorous, his rowing was uneven and ragged, and I feared he would not persevere in the task he had undertaken. And now a cloud seemed to come over my vision, and I lost sight for a time of the blue sea with its sparkling waters and gallant little fleet. End of section 1